Well, if you like to watch TV shows, a lot of times there's that, that previously on section. And if you're like me and you binge watch on Netflix, you fast forward through that because you're like, well, I just watched this five seconds ago, so I don't need to know what happened. But a lot of times, you know, back in the, the old days, quote unquote, we had to wait like a week, right, before you saw your next episode. And so sometimes we forgot what was going on. And so the previously on was always helpful. Well, in our text this morning, we need a, a little bit of a previously on, because if you look at chapter 28, verse 4, we were in chapter 28 two weeks ago, 28, verse 4, it says there, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at, what's that word there? Shunem, right? The Philistines came and encamped at Shunem. And in fact, we talked about this and we looked at this map and we pointed out that Shunem is up here and the Philistines were there and Israel gathered down here at Gilboa and Saul snuck up here to Endor to talk to the medium. And so we covered that in chapter 28. But now we come to chapter 29 and read what it says in chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. Well, Aphek and Shunem are not the same place. So why in chapter 28, which comes before chapter 29, why are they up here at, at Shunem and the, the Philistines and the Israelites are, are gathered together for battle? And then in chapter 29, when it opens, they're way down here at Aphek. So Shunem, Jezreel, the, the medium of Endor is way up here. This is chapter 28. Chapter 29 opens and all of the Philistine forces are gathered down here at Aphek. So what's going on? Well, what's going on is this is a previously on, or this is, a, and another way of thinking about it is this is a meanwhile. So before the Philistines get up there to Shunem, before Saul goes and visits the witch of Endor, the events of chapter 29 and chapter 30 take place. So this is backing up for us. The, the medium of Endor, the events of chapter 28, those haven't taken place yet. We're jumping back in time and going back to find out what was going on in David's life while Saul was making his way up to Gilboa and up to eventually the, the medium at Endor. And so in chapter 29, what we find is we find a, a continuation of a problem in David's life. And that problem in David's life is that David had been turning to himself. David had been exercising prideful self-reliance since all the way back in chapter 27, instead of trusting in and relying on the Lord. Chapter 27, what happened? David was panicking. He was fearful. Saul had been pursuing him for years at this point in time. He's been running for his life over and over and over again. And, and every time it looked like maybe finally Saul would finally see that, that David's not a threat and he would return to his home, there he was again ready to, to try to chase David down and put him to death. And so in chapter 27, David was fearful for his life. But rather than trusting the Lord, rather than turning to the Lord as he had done so many times before, this time... David said, the best thing for me is to go to the Philistines. The best thing for me is to run and take shelter with the enemies of God. Why? Because in his mind, in his own prideful self-reliance, he thought, you know what? It's better to be there because then I'll be safe from Saul. The problem with prideful self-reliance is it's a plague to biblical Christianity. It's like the dad who opens up the, the kid's new toy and throws out the instructions with the box because he can figure it out on his own. Or it's like driving around and, and, and knowing that you're absolutely hopelessly lost and have no clue how to get where you need to be, but thinking, you know what, I don't need to pull over and find directions, I'll just follow my nose. Or it's like the photographer for BBC that I read about recently who was on assignment in a, 
dense jungle area and he thought he heard macaws. And so he went searching for these macaws and looking up in the trees only to eventually look down and see signs that were surrounding him that said, warning, active minefield. Prideful self-reliance in Christianity leads us to take our eyes off of God and to think to ourselves, I have enough wisdom. I have enough experience. I'm seasoned enough to be able to take things into my own hands. I'm able to, to handle this on my own. My wisdom is superior to that of the Lord's. This can be disastrous for our relationship with Christ, and it can have tragic consequences that not only impact our lives, but as we'll see in our text this morning, impact the lives of those around us, the loved ones around us, or even for some of us, those that we're trying to witness to, trying to share Christ with. But what we'll see, thankfully, in chapter 29 and primarily in chapter 30 is we're going to see an example in David who, when he comes to his senses, does what all of us need to do when we've been prone towards prideful self-reliance. And he repents and exercises a humble dependence on the Lord. Well, not once in chapter 27 through 29 did David turn and seek the Lord's counsel. And where David found himself in chapter 29, and as we get ready for chapter 30, we'll walk through chapter 29 briefly. David finds himself up here in in Aphek with the Philistines. And the Philistines, the problem now is the Philistines are getting ready to go to battle against Israel. Well, that's a problem for David, isn't it? Because David has two choices at this point with his 600 mighty men that are with him. He can either raise his hand and say, "Ah, excuse me. King Akish, I've got a problem with this because really this whole time I haven't been loyal to you. I'm an Israelite. I'm always going to be an Israelite. And this whole time you've been having me down at Ziglag, I've been carrying out uh, battles and skirmishes against all the enemies of Israel down here. I'm not going to go to battle against the Israelites. If David makes that decision, that's the death warrant for he and his 600 men. What happens if David decides, okay, you know what? We're going to go into battle. Now, David, who remember when Saul was in the cave dropped into his lap, even there refused to kill Saul. Now David and his men are going to have to take up arms against their kinsmen, against their countrymen, for some of them even against their own blood, their own relatives. So David, who the Lord had set aside and anointed to be the next king of Israel, was now looking at a situation because of his selfish, prideful reliance on his, his own wisdom. He was now put into a situation where he was going to have to go to battle against the people that he would one day lead as king. That's a pretty tough situation. Well, God, because he is sovereign, and he is sovereign in all of this, none of this is taking place apart from God's control. In fact, even David's selfish decision, his his unwise decision to flee to the Philistines, God uses for his own glory and his own good. Because while David's down here, David's going out and wiping out the peoples that Israel should have wiped out when they first entered the promised land. In fact, David's doing more good behind enemy lines in Philistia than Saul's doing as the king of Israel. And so God is sovereign, and so his sovereignty continues in chapter 29. Because the lords of the Philistines come to Achish and they say, Hey, uh, excuse me, king, we're not too keen on David, the guy who wiped out Goliath with that single stone. Remember him? We're not too keen on him and his 600 men going to battle with us against their own people. Sure, right now they're a stench to the people of Israel. David's made himself a stench to King Saul. But what better way for David to get back into good graces with King Saul than for him to go into battle with us and then turn on us at the last minute when we're the most vulnerable? So these lords of the Philistines, they're pretty wise in this assessment. They go to Saul and they say, hey, Saul, 
or excuse me, Akish, they say, uh, you know what? Let's send them back. We don't need them in this. Well, Akish protests, but eventually he's won over and he calls David and David feigns protest, but I got to imagine it was a pretty weak attempt at, at, at protesting at this point. He's got to be thinking to himself, oh, please, Lord, let him send us home. Sure enough, Akish says, go back. So David and his men leave. That's chapter 29 for us. David and his men leave. This is God's grace. This is God's mercy. It's undeserved. David and his men were in that situation because of David's sin, because of David's refusal to trust the Lord. These were the consequences that he was suffering. And yet God's grace and his mercy and his compassion was bestowed upon David and these 600 men, and they're sent back to Ziklag. Well, they come back down, all the way down here to Ziklag, which was their home base. But what they return to, and what we'll find in chapter 30, is they return to find all of their wives, their loved ones, their children, their possessions gone. In fact, pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So why is all this taking place? Well, again, David, while he was down here, he had been carrying out all these raids against all these people down here, including the Amalekites. See, the Amalekites had a score to settle with David. Well, David and all of his men are up at Aphek, and surely the Amalekites knew that all the Philistine army was, was moving north to go to battle against Israel, and so that would have left these cities vulnerable, and so they launched their own raids, the Amalekites do. And they come to Ziklag, and they realize, wait a minute, this is David's town. And so they go into Ziklag, and David had gone into all of their cities and their towns and wiped out all of their, their kinsmen, all of their wives, all of their children, and left them decimated. And they, so they said, you know what, we're going to do the same thing. But in this instance, they, they take the wives and the children captive alive. We don't know for how long they were planning on keeping them alive. But again, God's sovereignty, they take them captive alive. And this is what the men come back to. Pick up in verse 3. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. See, David had not sought God's direction as he fled for his life from Saul. As he ran behind the enemy lines with the Philistines, he had not sought the Lord, and now he was suffering the consequences. He and his mighty men returned back to Ziklag, probably relishing in the relief that they were experiencing, not having to go to battle against their own loved ones, their own kinsmen in Israel, but they returned home to find their families gone. And everything that they had, all of the possessions that they had, gone wiped out, and the city burned. See, when we begin to drift from the Lord, and we begin to put our trust in ourselves rather than in his guidance, in his plan, in his will, we will ultimately also suffer the consequences. We will reach that point of rock bottom, which is exactly where David was. And so this morning, I want us to see the first thing that we need to be aware of is we need to beware the consequences of spiritual drift. Drift. 
Beware the consequences of spiritual drift. Again, notice the emotion in these verses. In verse 4, David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Sometimes we read the Bible and we forget the humanity portrayed. We know the rest of the story, so we read this and we're like, okay, cry your river, build your bridge, get over this, because you're going to get your families back in less than a chapter. But we have to remember that these men didn't know that. These men knew what they had done to the Amalekites. These men knew what they had done to the others in this area. They knew how merciless they had been in obedience to God, yes, but now their families were in the hands of their greatest enemies at this point in time outside of the Philistines. And they were worried and they were terrified what was going to befall their wives and their children. And so it's understandable that they raise their voice and they weep until they had no more strength to weep. David's mighty men, exhausted out of weeping. It's a devastating reality. It's a a steep price to pay for David's prideful neglect of God's guidance in his life, for his drift away from the Lord, thinking, you know what, I I can do this on my own. I know what's best. My wisdom is, is enough here. I'm experienced enough to figure this one out without having to really take this to the Lord to say, Lord, what's your will in this? Or to consult somebody else, another brother in Christ, and say, you know what, I'm thinking about doing this. Can I get your insights into this? Can I get your wisdom? Will you pray for me in this? See, our sin carries consequences, and if we continue to continually leave the Lord out of our decision-making, we'll end up leading ourselves into trouble. Instead, even in the shadow of the valley of death, we need to be making sure that we're seeking his counsel, making sure that we're acting in accordance with his will. The great promise that we have is God's always going to be with us, no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Psalm 23, 4 through 5. 23, 4 through 5, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why do we fear no evil even in the shadow of the valley of death? For because you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. See, whether you're riding high and life is going well right now or whether you're crawling through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. He's there. He's accessible. His wisdom is available to us. We have his word. We have other brothers in Christ. We have access to the throne of God by the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us. Even in those moments where we don't even know how to pray for ourselves, Romans 8, the Spirit is groaning within us with groanings too deep for words. We don't need to rely on ourselves. It's foolish for us to rely on ourselves. 
for David, things would go from bad to worst. Look at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed. His soul was in turmoil. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. Put yourself in the shoes of David's men for a minute, if you would. They'd been on the run with David for for years now. They had been sleeping in caves. They had been risking exposure. They had, had been risking their lives. They had been going from place to place to place with their families. And, and even when David had the opportunity twice over that we know of to put an end to this by killing Saul, David passed on it and asked them to trust him. And now David's leadership had brought them behind enemy lines to, to the, the detestable, hated Philistines. And they were part of the Philistines. And they almost had to go into battle with the Philistines against the Israelites, their own people. And then they had this overwhelming relief when they didn't have to do that. But then they come home to find that the city that David had led them to was destroyed and all their loved ones are gone. So they need somebody to blame. And David is a good candidate at this point. And so they're ready to kill him. Compromise carries consequences. Spiritual drift carries consequences. And David's compromise originated when in that prideful defiance of God, he trusted in himself rather than looking to the Lord for guidance. And now we're seeing exactly where that led him. But fortunately, David would learn from this. And these consequences would serve as a catalyst for change in his life. Think back to the last time David's life had been in this much peril. Chapter 27, right? Chapter 27, verse 1. David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. So he's, he's terrified. He's saying, look, eventually Saul's going to get me. I can only run for so long. So he's fearful for his life. What's his response in chapter 27? There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the, hand, to the land of the Philistines. What a ridiculous statement. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And during that time, from 27 through 29, there had been no movement from David to seek the Lord. None. He was content to sit there and think, you know what, this is working out pretty well for me. In fact, I'm able to keep doing the Lord's work because I'm able to to wipe out all those other people groups on behalf of God. And and me and my mighty men, we're fine here in Ziklag. Saul can't get to me. I'm going to ride it out here until Saul bites the dust and then I'll go back to Israel triumphant and I'll take the throne. But now the tables are turned and he's in the throes of his consequences. And again, thankfully, we see he learns from his mistake. Contrast chapter 27, verse 1, where he says, there's nothing better for me than to go to the land of the Philistines with chapter 6 of chapter 30. Or excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 30. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's what he should have done in chapter 27. Finally, he gets it in chapter 30. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. See, this is a mark of a man after God's own heart. In the heat of the most trying circumstances, he he strengthens himself. He steals himself in the Lord his God. David felt the hand of the Lord's discipline, and he responded rightly. In fact, it's point number two this morning. Respond to the correction of God's discipline. Respond to the correction of God's discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. 
the writer there, speaking initially of our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us, why? For our good. God's discipline is for our good. In order that, that to the end that, we may share his holiness. So why does God discipline his children? To make us more Christ-like, to make us more holy, to produce change in our lives. Verse 11, for the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields, it produces, it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so God's discipline has a purpose in our lives. He's not just a vindictive father who's up there wishing to inflict pain as punishment. It's for the purpose of correcting something in our lives, of leading us to the point of realizing the error of our ways, our sinfulness, repenting from that, and and seeing the way that we need to turn, where we need to go. And so I asked this morning, are are you aware of that when you're in the midst of the valley? Are you looking for God's hand of discipline that that perhaps God is trying to, to, to work on your life, to bear the fruit of righteousness, to produce a greater level of holiness in your life through discipline right now? Is there an area of your life that's that's in open rebellion to God, that's sinful, that you haven't yet repented of, that maybe he's going after and wanting to see correction in. We might wonder, okay, so I'm supposed to strengthen myself in the Lord, my God. What does that mean? That sounds nice and all. I mean, we, we, can, we can put that up above our, our, our computer screens and say, okay, I'm supposed to strengthen myself in the Lord, my God. But, but what does that mean? How do we do that? How do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? How do we respond to the corrective discipline of the Lord? Well, it's thought by by some that this may have been the point in time in David's life where he wrote Psalm 25. Psalm 25, and I think it fits there. Verse 4 through 7. Listen to this, and I think we get a picture here of what it looks like to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Psalm 25, 4 through 7. David says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths, Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Do you see the humility, the the shift in mindset here? From chapter 27 to chapter 30, and and if this is when he wrote chapter 25 of the Psalms, we see it on display for us here. To strengthen ourselves in the Lord is to say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. To strengthen ourselves in the Lord is to lay down our strength. And say, God, I need you. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. Lead me, God. I will follow you. You are the God of my salvation. I'm not the God of my salvation. I'm not the God of my deliverance. You're the God of my deliverance. You lead me. And it's also confessing our sins. Remember not the sins of my youth. Don't remember the sins of of my my youth, of, of the present right now. Don't remember my rebellion against you when I took things into my own control. Forgive me for that. Lord, I want to repent from that. See, these are the attitudes that characterize one who strengthens himself in the Lord. 
This is what the discipline of the Lord should do in our lives. So in verse 7 through 8, we read, David said to Abiathar the priest, the one that had come with him from Nob, who had the ephod, the one who had the, 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 the blessing of God as the priest of God at this point. David says to Abiathar, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? There's no more trusting in his own wisdom, his own strength, his own power at this point. 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so in the midst of a dark valley, David humbled himself and looked to the Lord and the Lord responded. Look at verse 8, the second half. God answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David's emboldened by this now. This is David's Liam Neeson moment, if you saw the movie Taken. Except here's the the thing. David's got 600 mighty men with him, who at this point in time are ready to kill him. And so this is the, the, the Braveheart speech of all Braveheart speeches. David rallies 600 men who are out for his blood, and he gets them behind him to go out and and go after the Amalekites and rescue everybody. David sends out that that courier to the Amalekites, right? I don't know who you are or where you are. Well, I do know who you are. I don't know where you are, but I have a very unique set of skills, and I will kill you. And so David rallies his men, and they go after them. But you might say, okay, well, PJ, it's, it's easy to walk out of the valley when you have a direct message from the Lord that says, go, pursue them, you'll overtake them. But what about for us? When we find ourselves in the, the valley, when we're crawling through that valley and you're saying, okay, we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We need to be humble. We need to trust God and seek his counsel and his wisdom. He's not gonna drop into us a game plan for exactly how to get out of debt or exactly how to fix my marriage or exactly how to see that my children are saved and walking with the Lord. What am I supposed to do when I don't have that clarity? Can I be as decisive and bold, as confident as David was? Let me encourage you, yes. And the answer to how is, to take a step that you know to take. To go to the word of God and say, God, I know what you've called me to do today. I may not get out of this valley today. The path out may still be socked in with fog, but I'm gonna take another step and live today in obedience to you. I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna pray that you will get me out of this. I'm gonna pray for reconciliation with my wife. I'm gonna pray that you will provide for the financial needs of my family. I'm gonna pray that you will take care of the situation with my child. I'm gonna pray that you will address this health issue in my life. And as I pray, I'm going to be faithful to be an obedient child of God in the meantime. That's how we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord and still be as decisive, as bold, as confident as David was. See, the Lord's discipline was meant to correct in David's life, and he responded rightly. It's meant to correct in our lives as well. So let's make sure that we are responding to that correction of the Lord's discipline. Verse 9, David set out with 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bazer, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, and he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bazer. 
Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite. Right there, that man could have signed his death warrant. But it gets worse. He says, my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. So there's a temptation here. David can say, all right, let's get our vengeance right now. You guys want to stone somebody? Stone this guy. But instead, David exercises wisdom here. And he says, all right, so verse 15, will you take me down to this band? And the guy says shrewdly, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Imagine this scene for a minute. If you're anything like me, even watching sports, I, I don't like to see an opposing team celebrate. So when, when my team loses, the TV goes off immediately. Okay, in, in baseball, if, if the opposing pitcher closes out the game, I turn it off before the catcher can get out to shake the hand of the opposing pitcher. I don't even want to see that. Don't let me see the smile on the face of the opposition. But more somberly, a lot more somberly, think back, if you will, to 9-11. And do you remember after those planes hit the towers, do you remember seeing the footage on the news of those in the Middle East that were dancing and celebrating and rejoicing in the streets? I don't know what that did to you, but it infuriated me. That's what David and his men come and behold. I don't know exactly what the geographical layout was, but I picture them up on the hilltop looking down and seeing just this debauchery taking place before them knowing these are the ones that went after their family. And so verse 17, David, rallying his men, struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, 24 hours of just ultimate battle here. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. So David takes his 400 men into battle with him. And we don't know how many Amalekites there were, but needless to say, when the same number of people escape as attack, you know that God was in that battle. 400 men flee. David attacked with 400 men. And so we know that God was in this battle. So to catch up, we've seen David and his men return to their village to find it ransacked, their families taken captive. David and his men are ready to kill David. This is the throes of the consequences of David's prideful rebellion against God. But David repents. He strengthens himself in the Lord. He seeks the Lord's guidance. The Lord says, go, pursue, you will overtake them. David finds by God's providence this Egyptian servant of the Amalekites in the wilderness there. They take him. He leads them to the Amalekites. They see them partying. David leads his men into battle and they wipe them out. Verse 18, David recovered all 
that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. What a change. David goes from death row to the champion of his people like that. David's pride had landed him in a pretty tough spot, but when he humbled himself and sought the Lord, David realized the fruits of a humble dependence on the Lord. But he couldn't let his guard down. He couldn't relax this reliance on the Lord. The people were behind him again and they were ready to follow him wherever he wanted to go. So it was important for David to continue his humble dependence on the Lord as he walked in triumph as much as it was while he crawled through the valley. That's point number three for us this morning. We need to make sure that we remain humble in victory. Remain humble in victory. You remember David and and Nabal? Remember the chapter before, David has Saul dropped into his lap and he exercises patience, trust in the Lord, compassion, mercy there, and he spares Saul's life. And then the very next chapter, we find him encountering this, literally this fool named Nabal. And David's ready to kill him because this fool had insulted his own character. And we talked there about how David had let his guard down, had let his guard down. Well, here David needed to make sure that he didn't do that. And for us, when we emerge from that valley, when God leads us out of a a time of, of trial or a time of discipline in our lives, we need to make sure that it's undeniably clear to everyone that God is the one to be praised for the victory. Because even remaining silent in these circumstances can be just as prideful as boasting in ourselves. So when our marriages are restored, we need to to make sure that we are rejoicing and praising God and giving him all the glory and letting everyone know what God has done. When a lost loved one, family member is saved, we need to make sure that we are rejoicing and thanking God and praising God for the salvation of what he has done by opening the blind eyes. When a sickness is healed or overcome or, or When medicine works, we need to rejoice in God because ultimately it wasn't the medicine, it was God who sustained our bodies to function the way that they do so that that medicine would work. We need to make sure that our relief that we feel in that time of triumph doesn't open the door to our returning again to a state of prideful self-reliance and just continuing that, that cycle. Verse 21, David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezer. And they went out to meet David and the, meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them back any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Well, that's nice of them. Can't have any of the spoil, but we'll give you back your wife and children. You know, David had this opportunity to agree with them and say, yeah, you're right. These guys don't deserve it. They were lazy. They were cowards. Why should they get any of the the plunder from our battle? But we see from David's response that he was maintaining this humble attitude of dependence on the Lord. See, David knew this was not his victory. 
but God's victory. 1 Samuel 30, 23. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. With what the Lord has given us. He, God has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute, an executive order, and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Verse 23, what the Lord has given us. David got it. He understood. He understood that this victory was not his, but the Lord's. And so he needed to remain humble in victory. Verse 26, this humility continues. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of, of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Shifmoth, in Eshtimoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So David takes all the spoil that he had gotten back from the Amalekites, including stuff that wasn't his to begin with because it was the stuff that the Amalekites had taken from others. But rather than hoard it for himself, he returns it. He sends it back to those people. He gives them back their, their cattle, their sheep, and their possessions, expressing humility in the Lord. There's something else here, though, as a sidebar that's going on. David's setting himself up for his inauguration as king over Israel. He's winning over the people of Judah here. He's showing the people of Judah, even as an exile behind enemy lines in, in Philistia, I can care for you and take care of you and protect you. You can trust me when I'm king as well. And sure enough, they, they would follow him. They would trust him. Well, the key to understanding this passage in 1 Samuel is to see the contrast between David's attitude in chapters 27 through 29 and the contrast of his attitude in chapter 30. See, there's many times in our lives where we're trusted, tempted to, to, to trust ourselves, to think that we can do it. We've got enough wisdom, enough experience, enough abilities to handle a situation on our own, but that's not what God has called us to. God has not called us to be the hero of our own story. He is. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of that truth. Theologian John Kimball, John Kimball put it this way. He said this, Satan wants to destroy our faith in God. God wants to destroy our faith in ourselves. Satan wants to destroy our faith in God. God wants to destroy our faith in ourselves. David had to learn that the hard way by suffering these consequences. And it's my prayer this morning that we're going to see this truth now and realize that regardless of where we are, we need to be seeking the Lord, trusting the Lord, putting off our own selfish, prideful reliance, putting to death our own strength and saying, I need to strengthen myself in the Lord. I can't help but wonder if it was times like these that David eventually taught his son the truth that we find in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this text. We're thankful that you are a God who is with us in the valleys as much as on the mountaintops. We're thankful for that truth of Psalm 139 that there's nowhere that we can flee from you that we can run from your presence. 
Lord, I pray that we would never have that desire, but Lord, what a comforting thought to know we always are, are in a place where we can come before you and have access to you. Even as the Apostle Paul will eventually say, pray without ceasing. Lord, what an amazing thought. The writer of Hebrews says that we can come boldly before your throne to find mercy and help in time of need. God, what a wondrous thought that is. Lord, I pray for those men that are in this room, and I I know there are some who are crawling through the valley right now, and the, the fog is socked in. I pray that you would help them to embolden themselves, strengthen themselves in you by saying, I know that you have called me to be a faithful man of God. I I know that you've called me to be a man of integrity, a man of purity, a man of of the word, of of being in the word, a man of prayer, a man who loves my family well. So I'm gonna do these things now and I'm gonna trust that you will deliver me out of this valley eventually. Lord, I pray for those men who are on the mountaintops right now, those men where life is going well. Lord, we thank you for that. We rejoice in that, Lord, and yet, I pray that you would guard their hearts from becoming prideful or becoming convinced that they're okay on their own, that they don't need you. But I pray that you would open their eyes to understand that they need you as much as the guy who's in the valley. Lord, may we be men who are constantly seeking you, strengthening ourselves in you. Men who are truly humbly dependent on you for everything. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray, amen.